one. Um, I'm afraid not as originally billed uh, a keynote speech from Stephen Flynn, who has uh, had to uh, remain in the House of Commons to fulfil his parliamentary duties. Uh, but instead, as a bonus, you get an IFG expert briefing, which, you know, pros and cons. Um, so just a, an opportunity to, uh, again, thank Grant Thornton, who is sponsoring uh, the, the conference today. This session, what we thought we'd do, uh, I have three of my excellent colleagues here who've stepped up to the plate at short notice. They're going to answer some of my questions. They're going to answer some of your questions. Um, and uh, hopefully we will all leave the room better informed. So, to kick off, uh, I'm going to ask you each the same question. Uh, and it's a question, it's a theme which has been running through uh, the discussions we've been having today already. Uh, it's a theme that Penny Morden touched on in her, her keynote, and indeed the, the panels before that, the panel I chaired and that the Alex chaired. From your perspective, each of you, what are the, the big challenges in your area in 2023, the areas that you work on for the IFG? Um, are there any particular areas that you think have been overlooked so far today that we ought to be thinking about? Kick off with you, Alex. Um, thanks, Hannah. And um, uh, it's reassuring to see people still here uh, uh, in, the, in the room. Uh, 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 the star attraction has changed. Um, key priorities in civil service. I mean, it's hard to get away from, uh, in the short term, the financial pressures. We covered it in the discussion um, earlier. Uh, budgets will be tight. And I think the challenge for the civil service is to uh, make efficiencies while improving the nature of the civil service and improving the, um, uh, uh, the service that it, that it provides to ministers and to the public. Um, so everything is going to be seen through the prism of efficiency uh, over the course of the next year. The risk with that is that you underinvest in some things that really need doing. Um, like uh, um, you know, digital projects that, um, uh, that are, will lead to efficiencies down the line uh, and take a sort of short-term gain, uh, long-term uh, pain approach. But I do think there's an opportunity there. I think the I mean, pay is going to be a big thing just in terms of workforce management. We heard a little bit from Antonio Romeo earlier being uh, diplomatic as only a permanent secretary can, can be around um, the pay question, but it's going to be a huge... Um, uh, drumbeat as it is elsewhere in the public sector. Notable this morning, um, talking to Dave Penman of the FDA uh, union, uh, fast streamers, fast streamers have uh, announced today that they're going on strike uh, with 88% uh, uh, voting for strike action. Fast streamers. I mean, that's a, that's, that, that is uh, remarkable and shows some of the discontent in the workforce um, around conditions and, and around um, pay. So, that's going to set the context, um, but then I think um, uh, you know, the opportunities are around um, reform. I think there are the themes that were coming out earlier. We may go on to talk about more of them in a minute, but um, you know, dealing with civil service churn, uh, uh, opening up the civil service um, to more secondments, more external expertise, creating the roots for those expertise. Um, the uh, uh, question of uh, clarifying accountabilities um, that should lead to a more um, uh, you know, a more effective and more efficient civil service, and that's the sort of thing that we come to. I know that we'll come back to more of those themes and the questions, but that's my kind of opener. Thank you. Nick? Uh, thank you. So looking at public services, I think there were probably 
three key issues, which is backlogs, uh, staffing, and a, a common theme across all government funding. Um, so on uh, backlogs, clearly the most high profile ones are in the uh, NHS and in the criminal justice system, but there's huge amounts of unmet need all across public services. Uh, the Prime Minister highlighted uh, and set as one of the things to judge this government by their ability to reduce backlogs uh, in the NHS. So it's clearly a high political priority. These backlogs have been exacerbated by the pandemic, but in most cases they were building beforehand. And certainly this year, it's going to be very difficult to make meaningful progress in addressing those backlogs, not least because even if there was unlimited money, which there is clearly not, in most cases, actually the limiting factor is staff. And that's good. Building up that workforce is going to take uh, some time and investment as well. Which brings me on to the staffing point. Uh, clearly, the big immediate problem is dealing with the industrial action. Uh, I published a comment piece uh, this morning arguing that the um, government's hardline approach is counterproductive. Um, that in hiding behind the pay review bodies and saying that their hands were tied despite setting their remits, it's undermined those bodies as forums for building consensus uh, between the government uh, and workforces. And many unions have now said that they will withdraw from those processes and won't take part this year. And similarly, the uh, strikes bill by trying to replace local uh, voluntary negotiations uh, over minimum service levels and instead replace them with kind of high profile uh, imposed national uh, guidelines um, it does nothing to take the heat out of these negotiations and ultimately the government can't legislate its way out uh, of these workforce problems uh, and if staff feel that they are underpaid uh, or if their rights to strike are limited then they are going to withdraw their labour in other ways uh, whether by uh, resigning in even greater numbers or by refusing to take those jobs uh, in the first place uh, and that is likely to exacerbate the very serious recruitment and retention problems that already exist across most public services, whether that's the NHS, schools, social care, or the criminal justice system. Uh, so finally, on funding, uh, it should be said that the autumn statement was reasonably generous, uh, particularly for the NHS, uh, for schools, uh, and for social care. But even where that funding is now likely to be enough to meet uh, growing demographic demand, it's unlikely to be enough to help uh, make a meaningful difference to backlogs, particularly in the short term. Uh, and while budgets are tight over the next two years, the problem is going to be even more acute for whoever forms the next government, because the indicative spending plans from 25-26 onwards are even tighter, and it's unlikely that service performance is going to be much better then than it is now. Thank you, Nick. I realise I failed. Although I introduced the panel before lunch, I should have done it again uh, at the start of this session. So we have Alex Thomas, who leads our work on civil service and policy making. Nick Davies, who leads our work on public services, and Jess Sargent, who's leading our review of the UK Constitution and is also our 
resident expert on all things Northern Ireland. So, Jess, nothing much going on in your space. No, not much to talk about, really. Um, <laughs> there's lots I could talk about, but I'm going to focus on three issues in particular. I think, first and foremost, the, the biggest challenge for the government at the moment is Parliament and the Prime Minister's own party. Um, because ultimately, in order to be able to achieve a lot of his agenda, he's going to need to get legislation through Parliament because of the slightly unusual way in which he uh, got his job. Uh, he is perhaps slightly weaker than other prime ministers. I think if you couple that also with the fact that we're heading into an election and a lot of MPs are starting to think about um, you know, how certain votes might go down in their constituencies um, or potentially are leaving Parliament and, and therefore you know, might become a little bit more rebellious, um, it's going to be a real challenge for the prime minister in, 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 up until the next general election to try and manage that. And I think the government's going to need to think very strategically about building coalitions of support for its proposals rather than necessarily just trying to, um, to push them through like previous governments might have been able to do. Um, I think the, the second big challenge is around devolution and the union, and I think that's an issue that's very fresh in people's minds uh, because of uh, what has unfolded this morning and the unprecedented move for the UK government to uh, block uh, legislation from the Scottish Parliament from achieving royal assent. So this feels like it's a continuation of the government's approach to take a quite hard-line approach to the devolved governments and, and to devolution to kind of assert itself as the government of the UK and not be afraid of um, kind of pushing back on uh, the Scottish government in particular, although we have also seen this theme um, play out uh, to some extent with the Welsh government and the Northern Ireland executive. Um, and to some extent, that could be seen as potentially a bit of a, of a gamble um, because they're not entirely sure at this point how that would go down with the Scottish public in particular. And there is a slight risk that this quite muscular approach to, to Scotland and legislation that the Scottish Parliament um, passed uh, by, by quite a big majority, um, whether that might, how that will go down with sort of soft unionists in, in Scotland and whether actually that might strengthen the case of the Scottish Government rather than necessarily uh, build support for the union. So this is a very delicate balance uh, for the UK Government right now and something that they'll need to be thinking of very consciously in the next year. Um, the third challenge, I think, is, is quite a big one, uh, but I think there are smaller things that the UK government could do to start to rebuild them, and I think this is about public faith in institutions, in, uh, in parliament, in politicians, in, in the government. Um, I think there has been quite a lot of, of damage um, in, in the past few years over various scandals, over standards, some of the stuff around second jobs. Um, recently, we had uh, Sky come out with some, some of the... Uh, publicly available data on that, which has kind of re-upped this issue in a way perhaps the government wasn't expecting. So I think another key challenge for the government will be thinking about before the next election how to restore faith in, in politicians and the institutions and start to repair some of that damage. Thank you very much, Jess. So I'm just going to come to each of our experts and, and dig a little more into, into the opening gambits. Um, Alex, I mean, thinking back to your panel this morning, Stephen Bush was, should we say, sceptical about the government's interest in, in civil service reform, which is clearly something we think is very important. This is a conference about 2023. What do you think the government can achieve on that front in 2023? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I have some sympathy with Stephen's point of view in one sense, which is that, of course, if you're interested in really ambitious, you know, proper rewiring of the state... Uh, you want a government that's coming in thinking that it's got five years or ten years in office in order to, you know, to, to make some of those changes. So, um, uh, so you know, 
that opportunity may come in, you know, maybe this year, but perhaps more likely 2024 or the beginning of 2025. So, you know, that, that context is true and is there, but I think it is, yes, as, as, as has been a theme of the, the day so far, I think it's a bit of a sort of council of uh, doom to suggest that you, you know, nothing will happen over the course of 2023 or there aren't real opportunities for things to happen. So, I mean, specific things to pick out and then one kind of bigger picture um, uh, point. I certainly think, you know, it is never too soon to start addressing the problem of civil service churn. Um, there have been some sort of slightly tentative uh, effect, uh, attempts to slow down the movement of staff by saying that senior civil servants need to serve uh, three years in, in role and setting that expectation. But there are no real kind of changes to incentives and the career incentive to spin round the civil service um, uh, rapidly uh, picking up different experiences to, to move up. So I think that is a, uh, you know, there are specific interventions that the civil service leadership could ab absolutely make. I think we published a report just before Christmas about opening up the civil service, getting in more specialist expertise. I mentioned it a moment ago. Uh, that's about creating uh, you know, employment routes for people with deep technical and specialist expertise, keeping them there, um, uh, removing some of the bureaucracy around uh, uh, joining and leaving the civil service, despite what I said about churn earlier. You know, there are huge kind of barriers to entry and barriers to exit um, of the civil service to get in the best talent. Um, uh, also, you know, changing the uh, interview process so that it's more comprehensible to people in the outside world who haven't uh, served their civil service apprenticeship. So there are quite kind of specific things there. I also think there's something civil service must do, uh, and we saw it again over the weekend with that story about Boris Johnson and his kind of distant cousin, £800,000 loan, which is about reinforcing ethical standards um, in terms of uh, the advice the civil service gives to uh, ministers. Uh, my, my sense is that the, the dial has been shifted a little bit, you know, bearing the impression of Boris Johnson away from uh, rigorous ethical standards. Uh, and I think the civil service must start to kind of turn that dial back. So those are the kind of, you know, really important but, but quite kind of specific things that, that it doesn't take a general election to, to do. There's also, and, uh, you know, we talked about it, or Sainsbury asked a question about it earlier, this question of a civil service statute and clarifying accountability uh, about who actually runs the civil service, where the authority for running the civil service and being held to account for high standards in the civil service sits. It's a big question, it's a fundamental question about civil service. Francis Maud has been doing a review for the last, um, what, when was it, I think it was summer, early summer last year, June, July time, uh, into precisely that question. He's been thinking about it. We know he's been talking to um, lots of um, people about it. He has, he has authority as a civil service uh, reformer and as someone who's put energy into um, uh, uh, government reform over the course of uh, much of his recent and not so recent uh, career. Um, so that, you know, that exists and there's no reason not to make a start on that now, even if I'm realistic about the chance of getting a, um, uh, a, a piece of uh, legislation through uh, to, uh, you know, to enact that before the end of 2024. And just picking up on that, on that final point, uh, this I idea we've put forward about a, a, a better statutory basis for the civil service, what, what difference would it actually make in practice? Can you, mm. can you point to how you feel it would, it would actually make a difference to the civil service on a day-to-day -day basis to have that better statutory so, basis? I think of it in, t in two ways. It would, the civil service has been pretty battered and bruised over the course of the last few years. See all the stats that we were showing earlier. See the fast stream strike result and other strike results. Um, it would underpin the civil service. It would give the civil service the clarity of knowing precisely what its responsibility is, what its objective is, and what it's working to. I think 
uh, Antonio Romeo uh, uh, earlier said that you know, permanent secretaries know what their accountabilities are, know what their jobs are. Well, yes, they, they, they do in one sense in that they're an accounting officer to parliament and they're responsible for money. But really, what is the, what is the, um, what is the core essence of what a permanent secretary's job is, what the cabinet secretary's uh, job is, and how is it underpinned? So I think there'd be a kind of ballasting of the authority and the confidence of the civil service in that sense. I also think one of the other points we argued is there is no... Other than ministers, there's nothing that sits on top of the whole civil service saying, well, how good a job are you doing? Um, uh, so there's no, there is a civil service board, but it's internal. And that's important. It's important that you have kind of internal committees. But how is the civil service being held to account, you know, externally, either by parliament or, um, you know, by some sort of structure that, um, that is saying, well, how, how effective is, is the civil service being? We do, we keep talking about Whitehall Monitor because it's on our minds because we're going to publish it. One of the chapters in this year's Whitehall Monitor, and we do it every year, is to say, well, how effective is the civil service, uh, you know, it, how effectively is it performing? And you can look at individual case studies and you can look at individual um, uh, pieces of work and say, well, that was good and that wasn't so good. It's almost impossible to get a sense of how, you know, how effective is the civil service. Now, that's a very fundamental question, but I can't help but think there is a, uh, you know, there's an opportunity to have much more kind of crispness and clarity about what the civil service's job is and then scrutiny on how well it's, it's performing. I'll leave it there. And one final question for you, Alex. Um, a phrase which I don't think has come up yet today is net zero. Mm. And you know, in past years, a conference like this, you absolutely would have expected uh, that to be a theme, but it feels like it's been squeezed off the agenda. We've argued that maybe that's easier, it's easier for that to happen because we've got the target, but have we really got the detailed plans in place across government to, and to get back to your theme, hold people to account for the progress they're making towards that target? Or is it still too vague? So I think the advantage of, with net zero is there is a clear target. It's, you know, you can, you, you, can, you can measure it and then you can work out how different interventions are going to uh, go towards that target. I think the you know, the drumbeat on climate and net zero waxes and wanes a bit according to the political and economic circumstances. I think it was very good. I haven't read it yet, confess, but the Chris Skidmore <coughs> report that came out um, uh, this week, uh, I think one of the things we learned from net zero is there is an architecture inside government, an institutional architecture that keeps up the drumbeat, keeps up the accountability on making progress on net zero. It may be flawed, it may be democratically contested, that's all as it should be, democratic contestation. But even when net zero isn't front of mind, there's an institutional architecture that keeps up that, that process. I'd almost turn the question around and say, uh, we've thought about it from net zero, there's more that you can do. What's the equivalent uh, long-term policy-making drumbeat for the resilience of the state uh, for another pandemic or for other kind of external uh, shocks? Um, what's the same drumbeat for um, uh, other kind of chronic policy problems, uh, poverty, uh, child poverty or um, obesity or uh, asylum. These things are you know, contested rightly um, uh, and um, uh, you know, must always be subject to the democratic oversight of parliament. Uh, and so you know, it shouldn't be, we shouldn't use institutions to lock ourselves on a particular policy course that, that, that can't then be unpicked by subsequent generations of politicians because you know, parliament's sovereign and it's right that the democratic will of the people is, is reflected. But, for these kind of deep underpinning chronic policy problems, 
we're further ahead on net zero than we are on some of the others. I do, I mean, to just circle back around to resilience, I, again, another conversation I was having with, um, with people here today, I do worry a bit that the kind of urgency around resilience, the responsibility and clarity of responsibilities around ensuring the resilience of the state um, uh, uh, has, has kind of lost a little bit of energy already. And we're, you know, barely out of the, uh, the, the, the COVID um, uh, period, uh, you know, hopefully. Um, uh, come back around to the kind of the advantages of being clear about the responsibilities of the civil service. One of those responsibilities, I think, should be the resilience of the state. I think uh, permanent secretaries do worry about, uh, about, about their kind of crisis response capability, um, but probably not enough. Uh, I think it should be a more core part of a permanent secretary's job to say, well, actually, I need to maintain the cap capacity and the, uh, uh, and the uh, response capability in my, uh, in my department. I think there's a good case for permanent secretaries to be able to say, at the very least, sort of issue an accounting officer uh, direction request around questions about um, the resilience of the things for which they're responsible and arguably to go a bit further and say, actually, if you're, if you're not going to give me the budget to, to maintain this, then we've got a real problem and we need to kind of address that. So, um, yeah, long term... The interaction between kind of institutional architecture and the long-term policy-making uh, questions, I think, is fascinating, important, and underappreciated. Thank you very much, Alex. Nick, so you, you talked a lot about the pressures, the challenges facing public services, but is it really as simple as a straight choice between paying people more, having worse, worse services? So, no, it's not. Uh, look, I mean, the... Uh, the government has said, well, it has been reported that the government is now considering paying, making some higher pay offers, whether on an ongoing basis or one-off basis to resolve different industrial disputes. However, its line has been that any funding for that will have to come from existing budgets. And if that is the case, then that will require cuts to other parts of the service. And therefore, even if you improve retention issues and you reduce the disruption from strikes, it's likely there are still going to be some other negative impacts on performance from the other cuts that you are making. Uh, clearly, the government could choose to increase funding for particular services, either by taking money from other parts of the overall budget or by increasing taxes or by increasing uh, borrowing. But these are all kind of political choices that it's kind of right for the government to make. But they are choices and different ones could be made. And are there non-monetary ways of thinking about improving retention, recruitment and those sorts of things? Or is it fundamentally the money is, is, is too salient in this context? So look, it's, it's a really, really good question, and it's why we've just uh, launched a, a new research project uh, on retention in public services, because clearly while uh, pay uh, is incredibly important, so are kind of working conditions and autonomy and the respect that staff have uh, in their day-to-day -day work. So I, the, clearly there is more that could be done there. But if you are a nurse or you're a teacher and you've seen a real-term cut your income of 5% over this last year and a kind of bigger decline since 2010, then clearly kind of money is going to be the, the first thing on your mind. And we've talked a lot today about government needing in this year to address the short-term problems in public services, to resolve strikes and so on. What would you like to see government do this year in terms of laying the groundwork for longer-term solutions, answers, ways to reduce the uh, the pressures on public services um, and, and to, to sort of address some of those long-term systemic chronic problems that we see? 
So I think it's fair to recognise that the government has done some things, and like particularly in the autumn statement, you know, uh, Jeremy Hunt, uh, probably because of his ministerial and select committee background, did give a big percentage increase uh, of funding to social care, uh, recognising the important role it plays in the kind of the overall working of the health and social care system. They've done things like try to uh, invest in diagnostic capacity in the criminal justice system. They've uh, said that they will fund unlimited sitting days and all of those things will help. In terms of this winter, though, obviously the time when, and particularly in the NHS, when decisions should have been made and policies implemented was a time when there was a huge amount of turnover amongst ministers. And even where things were announced, like uh, £500 million for social care to help discharge, which was announced in September, that money didn't actually hit services until December, when we've already entered winter. So there's not that much that can be done now, I suppose the immediate thing that could be done to help would be to resolve the industrial disputes, because that's not only kind of short-term disruption, but it's a kind of running sore in terms of problems uh, in those services. There are clearly other things that you could do to try and improve productivity in the long run. I think quite a lot of those probably are going to require at least upfront investment, even if they don't require um, ongoing funding. And particularly in the NHS, I think we are slightly reaping the impact of you know, a decade when in order to hold up day-to-day um, -day spending, we've cut investment on capital, for example, and which has left the NHS with you know, fewer MRI machines per capita than basically any other wealthy country uh, in the world. It's why we've got a kind of 10 billion maintenance backlog in schools, a 10 million maintenance backlog in hospitals, and clearly the productivity of those services uh, is going to be impacted if classrooms or surgeries are out of use because there are leaks or, or whatever in there. So solving that is going to take it's going to take a long while and while you know for example health funding is now broadly up to the OECD average undoing the kind of the relative underinvestment versus other countries is going to take quite a lot of time so if anything having a kind of a long-term plan uh, some kind of policy stability and some kind of honesty about what the trade-offs are in terms of kind of funding, investment and the performance that people can expect will all be helpful. But I don't think there are any quick fixes. Thank you, Nick. Jess, so one of the, you're running our review of the UK constitution. Um, before Christmas, we saw the Brown Commission come out, which is you know, a possible agenda for the Labour Party to adopt in, in terms of constitutional reform. But it's not, it's not obviously, I mean, Keir Starmer was there at the launch, uh, but Labour hasn't yet sort of indicated what it's planning to, t to take from Brown. And clearly, some of it is more implementable in the short term than, than other bits. So looking into your crystal ball, how, how do you think um, Labour should go about sort of translating Brown into something that looks like a sort of manifesto agenda on constitutional change. Absolutely. So, I mean, there's a huge amount in the Brown Review. Um, and uh, our team at the IFG did go through all of it. So if you don't want to, we do have an explainer on our website, uh, which I would recommend. Uh, but 
Some of it is, to some extent, a continuation of, uh, con of and a tweaking of current government policies. There's a big agenda on kind of English devolution, uh, which is not entirely dissimilar to some of the stuff the government's currently proposing to do on, on levelling up. Similarly, some of the proposals on um, intergovernmental relations are things that are kind of already in motion. So those are things that can be fairly easily delivered upon. Um, there's lots of other things, including um, new kind of... Uh, statutes that contain social and economic rights, that, that's quite ambitious, and obviously the very flagship uh, piece on uh, reform of the House of Lords, or as they would put it, abolishing the House of Lords and re replacing it with this um, assembly of nations and regions. And uh, we all know that Lords reform is, is a very difficult thing to do, um, and there's not a huge amount of detail at, in the, at the moment in the uh, Brown review as to exactly what that will look like. So there's a huge amount of work to be done uh, by the Labour Party in, in figuring that out. But I think two key things um, that a future Labour government might need to think of and a Labour Party preparing for government as, as um, it, it is, uh, we need to think about the first is prioritisation. If you're not going to be able to do all these things and certainly not in, in a single term, you know, what are your absolute priorities to be able to make that very clear to, to voters at the next election? And the second is thinking through the process of constitutional change, how you're going to organise yourself in, in government, what sort of coalitions of support you might need to build in Parliament, and that includes current members of the House of Lords itself, um, because any kind of reform of the House of Lords would need to be um, approved by them. And it's not clear that we're quite, they're quite at that stage yet. I think there's still some work to be done to think about exactly how to deliver this and what timescale is feasible as well I think is the other thing the, the, the Brown review is very clear that it would like this basically to start immediately um, but one of the key themes that's come out of the review of the UK constitution is that the way that we do constitutional reform in the UK is often quite ad hoc it's often quite reactionary we don't think about the implications of one constitutional change for other parts of the constitution um, and so I think it's really really important that there's a kind of holistic thorough process um, if you're going to do something as major as reforming Parliament which is at the center of our constitution and the Brown Commission proposes a new statutory underpinning for the civil service so <laughs> yes. the coalition is growing <laughs> obviously they should do immediately that one <laughs> Um, Jess, I build you as a Northern Ireland expert. Can you uh, give us your assessment of the state of play on Northern Ireland, particularly uh, something we, we think is very important, the prospects for restoring government in Northern Ireland? Absolutely. I'd realised I'd written that down as my key challenges at the beginning um, and, and failed to mention it. But obviously the fact that there is a part of the UK that currently doesn't have functioning government is incredibly serious. And uh, we saw from the last period of government the consequences of that on things like the health service and the education system. A lot of the problems we're talking about here are a lot more acute in Northern Ireland. And so there is a real urgency to try and restore government there. Um, I think it's difficult at the moment to see a clear path to that. I think we've seen uh, some really positive noises coming out of UK-EU discussions, and that is incredibly important. I think, um, you know, this idea that the UK government now very clearly wants a deal, um, that there is, um, they are discussing the issues, particularly around checks and controls. Um, I think all very positive noises, but even if there's an agreement in principle, there's a lot of technical detail to be worked out that is going to be very, very tricky. Um, and it's going to require compromise from both the UK and the EU to find a solution 
that suits both parties. And I think we're still a little way off that. I think at a political level, there needs to be some more thought about exactly how you deliver that. I mean, one of the big barriers is some of the UK government's ask, for example, on the European Court of Justice, on state aid, which are issues that the EU has said it, it won't move on. I think there's a question here about prioritisation. What are the absolute red lines? Um, and what issues might you be able to kind of leave until later while resolving the very urgent problems around checks and controls that are necessary in order to restore government in Northern Ireland? Having said all that, it's not entirely clear if there was a UK-EU deal that that would meet the DUP's tests um, that they had previously set out. Um, and then I think we're in a very difficult position. I think one thing that um, the UK government could potentially be thinking about is this sort of economic case uh, for uh, re-establishing government um, to really highlight the need for stability um, and certainty in order to grow business communities to be able to address all of these problems that um, I, I just mentioned around uh, kind of public services um, and put pressure on, on the DUP to go back into government in order to deliver for the people of Northern Ireland. But there are certainly no guarantees and I think we'll have to see how things unfold in the lead up to the, the Good Friday Agreement anniversary on the 10th of April, which lots of people are seeing is a very key date. Indeed. Um, we've got 12 minutes before we have to break. Um, so I'll take, I've got some questions coming through on the Slido. I also take any questions that are in the room. Um, so Alex is a lady here. Thanks, Alex, and thank you. Uh, hi everyone, I'm Helen Parker from Net Zero Frameworks at Bayes. Uh, portfolio includes climate litigation, CCC sponsorship and DAs. Great to hear you talk about Net Zero, finally, at 2pm this afternoon. Um, so, yeah, my first thing would be a comment, which is it is good to hear you talk about, for example, the Skidmore Review. Thank you for recognising that and watch this space for our response. But I think the second part of this would be a plea that Net Zero cannot be forgotten, even though we have made great progress. The target is just the beginning, not the end. And uh, net zero is both an economic opportunity, but also a threat. And so really discussions about the future resilience of the economy and the state have to go hand in hand with net zero. Thank you, Alex. There's a question down here. Hi there, uh, Will McCoy from Grant Thornton. Um, just interested in your comments on the uh, civil service and probably putting on a statutory footing. Mm. Um, I just wonder what lessons could be learned from the, the corporate code of governance, where you have independent non-execs to actually actively challenge on a real-time basis. I appreciate there's scrutiny bodies like the National Audit Office and the select committees, but that, that real-time challenge, while looking in the rearview mirrors to what went wrong, might be something that could be beneficial. Mm. Thanks. And I'm just going to uh, throw in one question that's coming online, an anonymous question. Uh, could anything be achieved in 2023 on civil service relocation? Mm -hmm. It's gone very quiet on, inverted commas, ministers will spend a day working in X office outside London, close inverted commas, front. Mm -hmm. I know that's something we've been thinking about, so I'll give, I think those are, those are all quite Alexy questions. <laughs> <laughs> I should try and be brief. I was, I was uh, spoke too long ago. Uh, net zero, I can't be forgotten, absolutely uh, agree uh, uh, completely. I think, you know, one of the things that there are, you know, lessons to learn from the net zero approach, um, uh, but also need to be continually reapplied on net zero, is, it is the very definition of a whole of government uh, uh, policy 
challenge. Um, uh, clearly, no progress will be made on net zero if it sits in a box in bays. Um, uh, absolutely has to be embedded in, uh, in, 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 in what... Um, uh, in what the government does through every kind of prism, which requires a stronger centre, requires you know better solutions to the perennial problem of cross-departmental uh, working, uh, kind of better ways of ironing out those um, those those pinch points, and a certain kind of authority. Uh, I would argue, I think we would argue, from the centre of the civil service, um, for all the departments should be uh, uh, you know accountable in some ways for what they do, but the centre of the civil service kind of driving those kind of cross-government projects in a much more uh, authoritative way. Uh, civil service corporate code of governance, yes. I mean, that's one of the things. I think there, there are two big sources of, uh, uh, of sort of insight other than from inside the civil service itself. There's the corporate world and then there are governments overseas. I think you know, it, is, it is notable that the National Audit Office does in many respects a good job, but it's, it's you know, an auditor rather than a kind of risk manager. And it's after the fact. Um, so uh, it, it can, you know, lead to... Uh, you know, accountability and permanent secretaries and others getting a difficult time in front of the um, Public Accounts Committee. But uh, it was interesting, again, it's got a bit quiet on it, but Labour at the conference before last proposed a sort of public spending body, uh, you know, that was uh, a bit more kind of, a bit more real time. So lessons uh, there. Uh, and absolutely, I mean, non-executive directors uh, exist in government departments, boards exist in government departments. Are they used as well as they uh, uh, might be? Um, you know, probably not. Are secretaries of state uh, interested enough in it than, as, they, as they might be? Probably not, which comes circles back round to that kind of, what's the job of the, the permanent secretary? Uh, civil service relocation had two really uh, stimulating and interesting days in Darlington before uh, Christmas. Uh, and we're going to publish a sort of case study on, on, on this. And it's not without its, its flaws. Those of you who, who, uh, but, but those of you who are here, here early will see that uh, our colleague Rhys put up a chart on civil servants in, in London, and it just started to nudge down, but only just. It is one of the areas I would pick out where uh, change has happened, perhaps more than the headline figures suggest. Because what happened in the civil service was through Brexit and then COVID, loads of new policy civil servants were recruited, and almost all of them, well, certainly the vast majority of them, were in London. So the numbers in London were inflated from 2016 uh, onwards. So there's actually uh, a long way to go to turn the oil tank around to actually get the overall numbers of civil servants uh, um, uh, uh, outside London, um, that, sorry, inside London going down and outside London uh, going up. But a lot have moved. The point, main point, and there are, again, more to say, this is not an event about civil service relocation, so I'll shut up. But um, this is not a two-year project or a three-year project. It's a 10-year or a 15-year or a 20-year or a 30-year project to move civil servants out of, out of London. Um, it also, you shouldn't overestimate what can be achieved by it. I think there is a bit of a temptation for ministers to say, well, we've moved hundreds of civil servants, particularly treasury civil servants, heaven forbid, um, uh, uh, out of London. Uh, you know, that is, that is you know, a big part of levelling up. It's important. It's frankly more important than I thought it was a few years ago before we uh, looked into it. Um, but it's not a kind of it's not a it's not a panacea, um, and it's a very long-term project. Thank you, Alex. More questions. Uh, so is Robert here. Robert Hazel from the Constitution UCL. A quick comment, if I may, and then and then a question. Um, the comment is a trailer for a forthcoming IFG report. Um, my colleague Meg Russell has been writing a paper for you on reform of the House of Lords which contains a detailed critique of the Brown proposals. And Jess, I hope you'll have it very soon. Um, my, my question, if I may, is to Alex and to Nick. And it follows from Munira Mirza's comments this morning about the need for better training 
in the civil service. If you could wave a magic wand, would you revive the civil service college? And if you were going to say yes to that, in what way would you redesign it so that it's really well suited for the current and the future needs of the civil service? Thank you, Robert. There's a lady here, Green. Hi, Sean Elliott from the TUC. I lead the public services team there and really welcomed, Nick, your comments around the need to resolve as quickly as possible the industrial disputes going on in the public sector because that approach of unfair pay and unfair funding for public services actually costs us all far more in the long run. And that got me thinking too around something that Nick, that we've previously spoken on, which is around outsourcing, and that hasn't come up yet today. But we know, for example, that Labour have pledged, should they get into to power, that they will lead the biggest insourcing drive in generations. And that's because we've seen time and time again that actually outsourcing in the long run ends up coming at the cost of paying conditions for the work force often leads to poorer quality services and costs the, the taxpayer uh, much more in the long run. And so I wondered, do you think we have won the case for insourcing in public services? And how feasible is it that uh, Labour, should they come into power, would be able to lead this biggest drive uh, of insourcing in a generation? Thank you. Nick, do you want to take that one? And Roberts and then Alex can add one? Yes. Uh, so where to start on this? Uh, so I think part of the problems with the discussion on insourcing and outsourcing is that the evidence base is actually pretty weak. Uh, and it's weak for outsourcing, despite it happening for decades. It's even more limited for insourcing because kind of meaningful insourcing hasn't been going for that long or hasn't been given the attention. I, so some research we did in 2019 found there is actually pretty good evidence that outsourcing, particularly in the early years, did lead to kind of some substantial savings for government, much less impact on the quality of those services, but that you're right, some of those savings did come from reductions uh, in staff wages uh, and conditions. Uh, and I think particularly in local authorities, you've seen a lot more recently making strategic decisions about services they want to insource because, for example, they see it as a, an investment in their local community and it gives them more power to increase the wages of workers who also are their residents. To be honest, I think Labour's position and the government's position is actually much closer than either would like to acknowledge, because I think the, the sourcing playbook, which is the government's kind of bible on outsourcing and, and insourcing, which they've now published a few editions of following the collapse of Carillion, makes a very strong case for uh, the kind of the thoroughness with which public bodies should make that make or buy decision about whether they buy it uh, or whether they deliver it internally. And I think my view is that there can, either approach can work. And part of the problem is that often public bodies have continued doing what they've always done, whether that's delivering it in-house or outsourcing it, and actually, rather than considering whether they have a competitive advantage or whether there are suppliers that have a competitive advantage in delivering that, and if so, how they can build a proper market, because it's certainly true that lots of outsourcing markets don't currently work that well. And then if I could pivot onto that other question, I'm going to 
leave the civil service college question to Alex, but in terms of where I would like to see quite a lot of investment in training and upskilling both in kind of civil service and in the wider public sector workforce is around the procurement bill, which is currently passing through Parliament. The government has said that this is a kind of a revolution uh, in how public procurement will work. I think it's more an evolution and actually most of the benefits from that will not come from the, the changes in the letters to the legislation or regulation. They'll come from changes in practice and culture. But those are going to be much harder to deliver and will require a substantial upskilling, particularly outside of Whitehall, where over the last decade or two, and particularly since Carillion, there has been a real focus on improving commercial skills. But that hasn't been matched in local authorities or the NHS. Thank you, Nick. Alex, you've got the final word. Oh, I went on the last ever course in the Civil Service College in <laughs> Sunningdale, uh, and the reason I knew it was the last ever course was because they were trying to get rid of all the food. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm a strong supporter of that. Um, uh, should, they, should they bring back the, um, uh, the Civil Service College? Uh, yes, and I think the government Civil Service agrees with that, and they have been uh, uh, establishing uh, uh, training facilities um, uh, rebuilding the brand of uh, uh, civil service uh, college and, and training in, in a way that is sort of fit for the challenges of the, the moment. So yes, I think ab absolutely. Um, what should it be teaching or what should civil servants be learning? I mean, the temptation in answering a question like this is to talk about data and digital skills, agree, agree entirely on uh, procurement and uh, uh, finance, uh, on project management skills. All of that is true. Civil servants need those skills. They need to be able to kind of bring them in. But I think there are two sort of priors to it. One is, uh, and again, we had an event on civil service skills the other week, which uh, I'd urge people to, to dig out if they're interested. One is the absolute core civil service skills, the kind of the, the essentials uh, of um, uh, policy making, how you communicate with ministers, how you can kind of draw together and synthesize a, a case um, uh, uh, and um, be able to present it kind of uh, coherently and persuasively. So uh, there is a sort of core essence of the policymakers' skills for that bit of the civil service. Um, and that's what I'm thinking about there. But even more fundamentally, there's something about knowledge and expertise of the sector of which you are a civil servant. You don't have to be necessarily a world-class specialist um, to be working in a particular, uh, uh, you know, on a particular um, policy or operations uh, uh, or, or delivery program. But you do need to have uh, more essential knowledge about the area in which you're working than I feel some civil servants do have at the moment, which brings us right back round to the churn question and the, uh, and, and, and the uh, erosion of expertise that civil servants are moving around too quickly. So yes to the college, but actually there are more fundamental questions about civil service skills, I think, that, that are sitting there. Thank you, Alex. Well, that's all we have time for. Thank you to everyone for your questions. Thank you to my excellent colleagues for stepping in to give you this briefing at short notice. Um, for those of you in the building, uh, there's coffee now outside. Um, our next session will begin at quarter two, uh, and that's our keynote speech from Lisa Nandy, the Shadow Secretary of State for Leveling Up Housing and Communities. Thank you.